You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. I want to welcome all of our guests to this episode of the Zeitgeist. Uh, today, we have with us Dr. Jeremin Settelmeier. Um, Jeremin, where are you joining us from today? Brussels. Brussels. You're in Brussels. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, Peter Rashish, Vice President of AGI, is also with us. Uh, hello, Peter. Good morning and afternoon. Um, so, um, Jeremin Settelmeier is the director of Bruegel, which is a, a think tank uh, in Brussels, um, which was established almost 20 years ago um, and is one of the leading uh, economic uh, think tanks uh, out there. And so, so we're delighted to have the opportunity uh, to talk today. Uh, Jeremin uh, has had a number of other positions uh, before this one, including at the Peterson Institute, uh, at the uh, IMF, um, and at the German Ministry of Economic Affairs. So um, that's just a sampling of the many things he's been involved with. And we're delighted to have the chance to talk today about um, international economic order. And uh, Jeremin, if if I could uh, start off uh, just by with an observation, uh, you know, the United States these days, uh, it, it, the political center of gravity is investing in the United States um, and the Biden administration is trying to work with like-minded, with advanced democracies, um, and uh, and to to try to promote uh, their own vision of the international economic order. We don't hear them talk much about things like the World Trade Organization. Instead, you have uh, you know initiatives like the US EU Trade and Technology Council. You have the G seven playing uh, a bigger role. Uh, I think that. In this more conflictual world, is the WTO still important? Yes, so I I think it's still important. And the reason is that unless the democratic industrial countries, uh, so this is the US and its allies, do not follow a set of rules that apply to everyone, Uh, So if they merely try to achieve a degree of fairness and cohesion among themselves, the rest of the world will lose patience with them. And the fact that the reaction of the so-called Global South to the invasion of Ukraine and to the West's uh, reactions to that invasion was not homogeneously in support of Ukraine and its allies is one reflection of that. Uh, So we cannot simply shove aside international rules that we have spent years constructing uh, and decide that, um, you know, level playing field principles, rules only apply to ourselves and our friends anymore, and that we can discriminate uh, against everyone else. Uh, So that type of approach, uh, you know, might be uh, useful in the sense of um, unshackling domestic policy uh, in the case of the US, uh, providing fewer restrictions 
but it it ultimately backfires internationally. And in that sense, I think there is a real trade-off uh, between uh, domestic objectives and international security objectives. Yermin, do you think the United States and the European Union have the same interests in that regard? I mean, because the EU is structured in a certain way institutionally, it's a collection of member states, you know, do you think it fears uh, a world without um, economic rules more than the United States? Or you think basically they should both fear that kind of world uh, to the same degree? So the point is often made that the uh, rules-based order within the EU is to some extent analogous uh, to the multilateral rules-based order. And as such, because our own EU rules-based order is completely hardwired in the treaty, we are more sympathetic or more used to the idea that uh, national sovereignty is constrained by such rules. So that, that is certainly true. But it would be completely consistent, uh, as far as I know, at least legally uh, and practically consistent, to say, well, you know, we are within the EU, a set of rules applies, but the EU as a whole shall not be fettered by any international rules. So we, we could adopt that view, and that would be essentially analogous uh, or, or sort of mimicking a little bit uh, of what the US uh, is doing. So I don't think that, you know, this is the main reason why Europeans are a bit more reluctant to follow the US into sort of a ruleless uh, international environment. I think the main the main reason why we are more reluctant uh, to do that is, is twofold. Uh, first, we are a lot more dependent on an open rules-based international trading system than the US, simply because we trade more, we're more open economies. Uh, we are also more dependent on trade because we are structurally less competitive than the US in some aspects and important aspects. So we have structurally higher energy prices, we have structurally higher um, indirect labor costs because we, um, we, we have larger social welfare nets. Uh, and as a result, we really depend on, you know, finding inputs around the world where they are cheap and, and well-made and feeding them into our value chains. Uh, and finally, I think there may also be a political issue, which is that even though both the United States and European countries committed sins in uh, what is now the developing uh, or emerging world, the sins of the Europeans uh, reach further into history and left deeper scars. So uh, we 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 don't really want to be accused uh, of uh, neo-colonialism uh, by taking a transactional approach uh, to our relationship with those uh, countries. The U.S. I think maybe in that. Um, respect is is less fettered but i mean having said that that depends a lot of on the u.s politics right so yeah you know, certainly president obama would would have had very similar i think uh, views on this as the europeans um you know president biden um i think 
the Biden administration has taken a more transactional approach, but but certainly less transactional than the Trump administration. So you, the U.S. politics plays a role, but I think we are sort of structurally a bit more careful as the former, former colonial masters of Africa and Latin America to, uh, you know, sort of abandon the idea uh, that... Um, you know, enlightened altruism should govern development, that development should be based on rules and principles and so should trade. Uh, so I think this hangs together somehow. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to something you said earlier, which was about the the connection between or maybe even the conflicting objectives of domestic um, uh, economic policy and national security. Uh, you know, there is a growing emphasis especially on the U.S. side in international economic policy on national security and on geopolitics. Uh, you know, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. national security advisor, gave a big speech on this uh, topic in April. Germany has issued a national security strategy. We are speaking on July 14th, 2023, the day after the German government issued its uh, China strategy. And at the same time, uh, the uh, the the, U the EU is proposing an economic security strategy. How do you look at this attempt to reconcile national security and trade and foreign economic policy? Uh, you know, can uh, economic policy uh, really promote a, a national security interest, uh, and and if so, in what way? Are we get are, are governments getting it right or wrong these days? Well, I mean, first, I absolutely welcome the idea that. One has to think about economic security or generally economic prosperity objectives and security objectives, including national security objectives, conventionally understood as, as protecting ourselves against threats caused by foreign powers, that one has to think about these things together, right? That one cannot easily dissociate itself. So, you know, for sure, um, economic policy and foreign policy, policy in general, uh, uh, tends to have blind spots. Uh, and those blind spots typically have to do with protracted periods where some threats, shocks, uh, were less of an issue. So uh, before the global financial crisis, we had a blind spots uh, with respect to financial vulnerabilities, and that then led to a reappreciation of arrangements for international financial stability and financial regulation after the global financial crisis. Before the pandemic, we had a blind spot for threats uh, or, or dangers associated with, with the health system, and that led to a sort of reappraisal of preparedness in this area, and more generally, of the idea that societies need to be resilient against any kind of unforeseen shock. And then we had the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the weaponization of, of energy. And so that has brought home that blind spot, particularly in my country, Germany, and in, in Europe. And, you know, those that you know to their credit have warned about threats associated with a potentially hostile china for a while have used this to draw analogies to what could happen to us if we did not properly reflect uh, economic national security objectives 
in our trade patterns, right? So this is uh, completely legitimate. Uh, there are, however, two problems. One is we're yet again in danger of overshooting, right? Of fighting the last battle. Now, the proponents of this are saying it's not the last battle, it's the next battle. And they, they may be, they may well be right. So clearly, I'm not saying one should not take this seriously. One, we should upgrade this. But we should not upgrade it at the cost of forgetting that economic and political shocks of other types can also be a threat to economic security and particularly domestic uh, shocks. And that, uh, you know, international integration is a source of strength against those shocks. If all we wanted were to minimize uh, threats arising from national security, we would go into autarky. And that would be obviously completely stupid. So there is a, a, a danger of overreacting. And my reading of Secretary Yellen's, you know, brave and smart approach uh, towards China is that she is trying to reconcile, uh, you know, taking national security, national economic security objectives recent, uh, seriously with the need not to overreact. So that, that's the first caveat. The, the second caveat is that even if you assume some kind of um, primacy, primat, not sure how you mm. say this. Yeah, primacy. Primacy or primacy of uh, uh, foreign policy in um, you know, thinking in arrangements um of the type of the inflation reduction act so even if even you if you want to give this if you if you want to you know give an important role to economic security considerations in economic policy in external policy in trade policy in industrial policy it is in my view too narrow to define foreign policy interests in terms of let's a make sure that we de-risk um you know develop our structures away from our main systemic rival china and b keep our allies close i think that pretty much sums up the approach in the ira i think you know the keeping our allies close approach is something that came later it was obviously very poorly drafted initially because the definition of free trade agreement was not aligned with those of allies, but the Treasury and the White House have since tried to backpedal on them. And, and to their credit, you know, they have they have achieved some of that. But that for me is still far too narrow a, a, a formulation of a national security or foreign policy objective, which should also worry about the rest of the world, right? The vast rest of the world that sits somewhere in the middle between the West and, and China. And so a set of domestic and economic policies that appears to be entirely self-minding um, with respect to the interests of the US and its allies is not going to make us very popular in the rest of the world. And particularly a, a set of economic policies that systematically tries to prevent uh, the quote-unquote loss of manufacturing jobs in the rich countries so that we can in effect, you know, continue uh, enjoying the benefits, the rents 
possibly in international trade associated with these jobs to the detriment of emerging markets that would otherwise learn uh, technologies in these areas and, and take production uh, from us. So I think that to me is a, a very narrow view that cannot be reconciled with foreign policy objective that is in fact um, bad for the foreign policy interests of the US, that's just protectionism. And so I do think that there is a very big problem in that you know, both decarbonization objectives and economic security objectives are being used to rationalize something much more parochial and much less highbrow, which is just a global fight over a small set of jobs. Uh, that's the bit I like the least about this discussion. Uh, Yeremin, we have just been speaking about trade and security. Um, another trade and issue is the nexus of trade and climate policies. Um, I think it's an area where the US and the EU are really at the forefront, but there do seem to be uncertainties about um, you know, the consistency of some of their actions, more or less on either side with multilateral rules. Um, we've seen that India has promised it's going to challenge the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism in the WTO. And um, there are, from what we understand, appear to be some tensions on the issue of WTO compatibility and the talks between the US and the EU on arriving at an, an arrangement on, on steel and aluminum. Um, do you think we need to update WTO rules if we want to fully empower trade policy uh, on behalf of climate action, or are they, or is the status quo uh, good enough for that? So, on the I've, I have mixed feelings about that. On balance, I would say yes. Uh, and let me just say first why I would say yes, and then why why I have mixed feelings. So where I sort of come out differently from what what I think is now the emerging conventional wisdom. So the reason why I would say yes is, to put it very simply, this is about the use of subsidies, right? This is mostly the instrument that might conflict with WTO rules and the instrument that is being used massively in the Inflation Reduction Act, also an instrument that the Europeans have been using for a long time, but without uh, causing such... Um, such strong reactions. Um, and then the question is, you know, is there something in the WTO rules that would restrict uh, the use of subsidies that might be, you know, entirely appropriate from a, a, a climate change mitigation perspective? And, and the answer is, the, so the WTO subsidies regime um, distinguishes between two classes, prohibited subsidies and so-called actionable subsidies. And so the actionable subsidies are subsidies that are not prohibited per se, but they are prohibited if they damage um, uh, uh, you know, the industry of the trading partner country. And then in principle, that country can um, impose um, uh, trade measures to offset that uh, that damage. Uh, so what, what is clear, I think, is that the set of subsidies that are currently prohibited by the WTO, uh, which is discriminatory subsidies, subsidies that 
are conditional on producing content in your own country, that those should remain prohibited, right? So here there's nothing to, to liberalize or to change. This is just bad stuff. It's not necessary to have such subsidies to do good climate change policy. The argument that is being made is that there could be a set of subsidies within this actionable category that even though if they are perfectly sensible and not discriminatory, there's still sort of legal risk, if you like, from the fact that they are actionable. And so it might be a good idea to define a category of subsidies ex ante that fall, that you know are very unlikely to harm trade, but they are easily justifiable with respect to environmental benefits, right? So I'm I'm sympathetic to that to that general line. Now, the, the sense in which I am not very sympathetic, uh, or I think that the argument sometimes is taken too far, is that I think that for the most part, there is less conflict between fairness in, in trade and you know <clears throat> competitiveness um, uh, of trading partners and climate policy than is normally perceived. So there are two sets of subsidies that make a lot of sense for climate policy reasons. And both of these subsidies, and also, by the way, something like CBAM, uh, are, do not inherently lead to discriminatory trade uh, repercussions. There can be subsidies of renewable energy sources, which is what Germany has done uh, forever. Here, you're just subsidizing your energy producers for using renewables. The energy producers turn around. They're going to need capital goods to produce those renewables. These capital goods, they can get from anywhere in the world. There is no reason why this has a bad trade effect for the rest of the world. Indeed, Germany was accused in quotation marks of exactly the opposite, namely to subsidize the growth of the Chinese photovoltaic industry through its renewable energy subsidies. So here it is not that German subsidies benefit German producers, right? Uh, the other category where th there is no uh, intrinsic trade distorting effect is innovation uh, type subsidies, right? So again, this is of course a subsidy for a domestic producer that wants to innovate. You, you don't subsidize firms abroad. But the point is that the benefits of the innovation uh, cut across borders, right? They, there may be a first mover advantage of a particular uh, producer, but ultimately the justification for, for a subsidy is, is the spillovers and the spillovers are international, not just among a domestic, a domestic firm. And finally, the CBAM you know, can be designed to be non-discriminatory. It, it may conflict with some letter of current WTO rules, and I'm not an expert of that, and there may be the basis for a, for a complaint. But in principle, the CBAM partly corrects a disadvantage that is inflicted on domestic producers that have to pay a carbon price for their emissions, right? It, it corrects that um, distortion. So we're putting European domestic producers at a disadvantage by sub subjecting them to this tax for production in the EU. And we are partly leveling the playing field by requiring the same tax 
of countries that would import goods with carbon contact into the EU. So that's a leveling of the playing field, and it does it only within the EU. It still does not level the playing field with respect back to exports of goods produced in the EU outside the EU, because we cannot and we will not import an export subsidy for those countries. This is explicitly prohibited by the WTO. So the, the point is, you, you can do a whole lot in uh, coming up both with subsidy arrangements and with current border adjustment uh, mechanisms in the name of decarbonization that do not really discriminate. Uh, and then there are some categories where, you know, there is a potential for violating WTO rules, even though these are perfectly sensible things. And for those, yes, one probably needs to change some of these rules. But I, I do not view the current regime as being a huge obstacle uh, to decarbonization. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the answer. But what about the climate club idea, which the German government uh, started to um, promote when it had its G7 presidency? And if you, I think, if you look at the original conception of that idea by by the economist William Nordhaus, it it would include a common external tariff, which seems to me. Uh, would have a hard time um, surviving a WTO challenge. So are, is your assumption that the use of a trade tool like a tariff doesn't have to be an essential part of, of uh, meeting decarbonization goals? So, so this goes too much into the weeds, certainly for, for me. So as I understand it, the broad intention of the Climate Club was to expand the countries that um, have similar decarbonization instruments, whether regulatory or price, beyond the confines of the EU. So the first best certainly is to have a common emissions trading system, and then a carbon adjustment mechanism around the group of countries that share that system, then there could be sort of more pragmatic intermediate solutions for country that enables you to group together uh, uh, countries that play by roughly the same rules. And then if you like offset the disadvantage uh, of either regulation or carbon pricing within the carbon club uh, uh, by uh, imposing a form of border adjustment mechanism. Uh, but what I'm not completely, I do not completely understand, so this is simply my limitation, is how you would deal with uh, countries that achieve low carbon so subsidies in such a uh, regime, uh, whose firms not only uh, are not hobbled by decarbonization policy but actually put in a at a better in a better position right as exporters and and in the domestic markets through these policies right and, and clearly you know what what would be wildly discriminatory and and certainly against WTO rules is to you know both subsidize a particular set of firms for um becoming greener and at the same time, protecting them through an external tariff. So that, that's not going to work. I don't know 
how this would have been handled in the original climate, German Climate Club idea. My perception is that it is a problem of the Climate Club version with respect to steel and aluminum that the Biden administration proposed to the to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's zoom in on Germany for a moment, if uh, if we could. Um, through the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, the growing concerns over Chinese economic practices, which we see, you know, expressed in quite a lot of detail in the China strategy that came out yesterday. Um, also through the the shock, the energy price shock uh, in Europe, one often hears the German uh, public discourse um, expressing a, a worry, a fear of deindustrialization, um, that companies will move elsewhere, or that you know, in a more subtle way, that their in future investment decisions will be outside of Germany's borders rather than than inside. And you know, some data that uh, I've seen just in the last few days uh, indicates that at least in 2021 and 2022, there was a net uh, investment outflow uh, from Germany. In other words, German companies invested significantly more abroad than uh, foreign companies did in Germany. So how how do you look at this does, do you think germany can innovate its way out of the current situation um and retain its its leading role as the fourth largest economy in the world okay so we need to peel off several several layers of this onion so you know in my view protecting the german auto industry for example or the chemical industry is not the same as maintaining the leading a leading role right mm -hmm. these are these are different things. So I think there's sort of a, a narrow question and a bigger question. So the, the, the narrow question is whether competition from China, a rapid technological catch-up, and maybe combined with some protectionism of the US, even though I don't really view that as a threat, I think this was essentially a, a mistake in the initial drafting of the RIA, which, which is being reversed, whether this can sort of threaten the current German industrial model, uh, which is based on having a relatively large share compared to the other G7 countries uh, of manufacturing value added. And e even though that share has been declining just as fast as in the other countries, it just came from a higher base, but it's you know still important for German the society in the sense that unions are organized around it, communities are organized around it. So can that can that model be preserved? And then there's the broader question of whether um, you know German economic prosperity can be uh, preserved. And so with respect to the narrower uh, question, um, I think there is a call it a serious threat. Uh, that some of our industries are going to shrink uh, in the sense that some of the value added of our industries are going to be um, produced outside Germany. And so um, the, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's not a given. Uh, so what the, particularly the chemical industries, you know, to some extent, broader set of German industries is after right now is to prevent this from happening by over the medium term 
finding new energy sources uh, that are cheap and abundant and green, so this is green hydrogen, that would allow Germany to continue with the same industrial model, meaning not only a relatively high share of manufacturing, but also a relatively high share of in energy intensive. Energy intensive, yeah. Which, which really makes no sense of, uh, in, a, in a, you know, comparative advantage lens in a country that doesn't have energy and has not had energy sources to speak of for the last you know 70 years or, or so but what has happened over these last 70 years well germany has been very good at substituting the formerly domestically existing uh, abundant sources of energy mainly coal by imported sources and initially the big shift was to oil and then the big shift was to imported gas and now you know the hope is that green hydrogen is going to be the new gas now they have done it, you know, two or three times. They might do it again. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't discount it. Uh, but you know that substitution is going to take some time, and there may be costs. And then the question is, how how they're gonna how they're gonna tie themselves over this period, even in the optimistic view that this will eventually arrive, the chief energy will eventually arrive. Well, there are sort of essentially two ways they can do it, um, with a lot of state support. Uh, which is uh, what is the background for the call for a, a, a so-called industry energy price, an industry mm -hmm. price in Germany right now, which has pretty widespread uh, support. That's uh, one thing. So the argument is we need a bridge to the new abundant renewable and imported hydrogen industries. It's just a bridge. Just help us get through this period so we don't have to change our model. Uh, the other, but, but okay, but there, there the fundamental difficulty is that this has is a huge tensions with the single market, right? So this would be a massive subsidy for German industry, not matched by subsidies in other European countries. And unless the Germans can be super generous fiscally, which they probably won't be, um, this is is not going to be consistent with state aid rules. Or alternatively, the political cost of Germany ramming this through is going to be super high. So I, I don't really see this making it the industry uh, and uh, electricity price. So then what is the alternative uh, strategy? The alternative strategy is to be smart about what you produce, what stages of energy intensive products you actually produce in Germany and what you import, right? And so that seems to me a, a likely development that we will shed um, value added in these industries, which does not mean that we will lose those industries. It's just we're gonna import a bigger, part of the value added chain, namely those that require energy intensive products that are much cheaper outside Germany. And that seems to me a you know perfectly reasonable adjustment um, approach. And then the question is, how costly is this in terms of jobs? I'm not sure, but I would suspect that as a share of you know, total labor force in Germany, it's, it's a rather uh, a small cost. So, so with respect to the narrow question is, you know, can we can we survive with our current model? Is that the chances are that we will have to change the model either by, um, mostly by uh, not necessarily by losing these industries entirely, but by quote unquote losing or 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 uh, moving offshore some value added stages of these uh, industries. Okay, then there's this, this bigger question. Uh, which is, is going this process somehow going to 
threaten prosperity in a in a broader sense. So, you know, given where I come out in stage one, the the answer is is probably not because I I do see some successful adaptation that preserves you know the the highest value added stages of these industries in 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 Germany, but there is you know a catastrophic scenario out there, uh, which if you like. If you want to have an analogy, the closest analogy is the quartz revolution in watchmaking and what it did to the Swiss watch industry, right? So you have an entire industry just wiped out because of much cheaper quartz watches in in um, in Japan. So did this undermine Swiss prosperity? Well, it, it certainly was a big problem for certain regions in Switzerland for a protracted period of time. But, you know, ultimately that industry reinvented itself as a luxury industry. And of course, Switzerland was sufficiently diversified to not really see its position as a leading industry dented. So the bottom line of this is that I'm pretty confident that Germany can make it, can continue to be a leading advanced country, notwithstanding the fact that this, um, you know, technology shock and trade-related shock um, uh, is going to cause significant disruption and will require major adaptation. I think that has been a uh, tremendous uh, tour across the uh, the global economy. And I think it, your answer to this uh, last question is a reminder um, that uh, that one has to keep not just a particular industry um, in mind, uh, but uh, an entire uh, economy, which I think is sometimes missing uh, when we hear this deindustrialization uh, discussion uh, happening uh, happening in Germany because it overlooks the ways in which Germany throughout uh, the the post-war uh, ec period economically has adjusted uh, continuously um, uh, rather than uh, remaining uh, static. Absolutely. Well, Jeremy uh, uh, Settelmeyer, this has been a, a terrific discussion and uh, I want to thank you for taking us on this tour. Uh, and for spending so much time with us. Um, we uh, really appreciate it. And we look forward to following Bruegel's work uh, and your work personally. Uh, and uh, to all of our listeners out there, uh, we look forward to having you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thank you so much, Jeff and Peter. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at AmericanGerman.Institute, formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there.